I was with Eric, we were meeting, talking about tonight and, and planning things out. He got a message on his phone from a news article, and it was pretty crazy. And it wasn't a satirical article or anything. It was like a legitimate news source. And so I want to share, you with that, share with you what that article was. So the article was about this married couple and, and this wife who had her husband's phone, and she was going through his phone, scrolling through it. And she gets to the photos, she's going through his photos, and then something catches her attention, and she realizes that there's a picture with him and a younger, thinner girl. And she was livid. She went into a blind rage, doesn't give him a chance to explain himself or anything, grabs a knife, and then starts stabbing him repeatedly in the arms and in the legs. Yelling at him, screaming at him. He can't get two words out. He's getting stabbed. And eventually what happens is he grabs the knife from her and is like, what in the world are you talking about? Picture on my phone. He said, there's no picture with me and a younger, thinner woman on my phone. What she realized then was that the picture was a picture of her when she was younger. What happened is he was going through some old emails found some pictures from when they were dating, and then saved them to his phone. And so that picture was not another woman that he was cheating on her with. It was her, his wife. And you might be wondering, why in the world would I tell you that insane story? Here's why. This lady had severe trust issues, obviously, and these trust issues dictated her behavior and her behavior led to some pretty severe consequences. Tonight, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 16, so you can get your Bibles out or your Bible apps, or if not, it's going to be on the screens, that's fine as well. And in Exodus chapter 16, we're going to find that the Israelites, God's people, had some trust issues with God, and their trust issues dictated their behavior, and their behavior led to some consequences. So just to give you a little bit of a background before we dive into the, the text, the Israelites, God's people, they had been enslaved and oppressed in Egypt for over 400 years. And they're towards the end of their time in Egypt. It had gotten pretty bad. They were severely overly worked, and Pharaoh had e even issued a decree because he was so paranoid that they would join in with an invading army. He issued a decree to have the baby boys of Israel thrown into the Nile River to die. And so God hears the cries of his people, and he raises up a man named Moses. Now Moses was born an Israelite baby boy, but instead of being cast into the Nile, he was placed there in a basket, and he floated downstream, and Pharaoh's daughter found him and then raised him as her own son. And so Moses was raised on Pharaoh's dime. But as a young man, he saw an Egyptian uh, abusing an Israelite, and he murdered the Egyptian and word gets out, and Moses has to flee to a distant land. But many years later, God brings him back to come and to set free his people from the oppressive rule of Egypt. And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, let God's people go so that they can worship. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he wouldn't let them go. And thus started this cycle where Moses would go to Pharaoh and say, hey, let my people go. Let them go and worship, and if not, there will be a plague. But Pharaoh, his heart was hardened, and the plague would then come. 
Pharaoh would then go and cry to Moses, say, hey, stop the plague, call off the plague, go to your God, cry out to your God for me, and I will let your people go. And then Moses would call off the plague, and then Pharaoh's heart would harden, and he wouldn't let them go. And then over and over and over again, and as you're reading this, you're like, God, how long are you going to give this man a chance to repent? He's wicked. He's cruel. How long are you going to give him opportunities to repent? He's clearly not going to, but it continues on and on. And then finally, God does send the final plague, the death of the firstborn. But even with this plague, he gives a way out. He says, if you will go and find an unblemished lamb, and you will sacrifice that lamb and then paint its blood on the doorpost, when my angel comes and sees the blood of the lamb sacrificed on the doorpost, then I will pass over that family. The lamb will be a substitute for you. And so the Israelites, they heed the word of God, they do this, and that night there were great cries in Egypt. And then Pharaoh finally said, hey, take the people and go. Leave. And so the Israelites leave Egypt, but Pharaoh's heart, it was hardened again. He takes his army and he chases after the Israelites. And the Israelites are pinned back behind the Red Sea with nowhere to go. And they start saying, why did he set us free? Just so that we can come out here and, and we're going to die right here. Why would he set us free? And Moses encourages them and says, hey, the Lord is going to work a salvation. You just need to be still. And that's exactly what happens. God parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites march through on dry land, and they make it all the way through to the other side. Pharaoh and his army, they march in after them, and then God crushes the sea on top of them, eliminating the enemy of the Israelites and setting them free. He worked this mighty, miraculous salvation for them. And then shortly after that, they need some water a couple days later, and God miraculously provides water for them as well. And that's the backdrop of Exodus chapter 16, where we're going to be this, uh, this evening. So the first three verses are going to be on the screen. We're going to read through this, and I'm going to break it apart and talk about it. I'll just summarize these first three verses. Essentially what happens, the Israelites, they're hungry. It makes sense. It's been some time since they've been set free. They're hungry. They're wondering when they're ne- where and where their next meal is going to come from, which, again, makes sense. And they start to grumble. But then they make this amazing, just ridiculous statement and said, we were better off in Egypt. At least in Egypt, we knew where our meal was going to come from. Isn't that insane? Egypt, you know, the place where they were overworked, the place where their baby boys were being thrown into the Nile River to die. Egypt is where they wanted to go. You're like, this makes no sense. Did they really think that God worked all those miracles and worked this incredible salvation just to let them die of hunger in the wilderness? So starting in verses 4 through 12, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, 
what, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because of the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So what's happening here? God hears the cries of his people, and he promises provision for them. He says, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you in the morning, and in the evening you're going to have quail. You're going to have meat to eat. Then Moses, he gathers the people, he relays this message to them, and he lets them know. He says, hey, you're grumbling? It's not with Mo me or with Aaron. Your grumbling's with the Lord, because he's the one who's providing for you. He's the one who's working for your good. And he tells them that this is going to happen, and it's going to let you know that he is the one who set you free from Egypt, like you needed another sign, like parting the Red Sea wasn't enough, like all the plagues weren't enough. But he says, from this, you're going to know. And the, the people see a manifestation of God's glory, which gives affirmation to Moses' message. And, and all of this is just to reaffirm a theme that's all throughout the book of Exodus, which you'll find it if you read it, is that Yahweh is their God. The Lord is their God, and they are his people. So continuing on in verses 13 through 21, it says this, it says, In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know that what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given to you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, eat one of you as much as he can eat. You, you shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave by any of it over until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms, and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. So everything happens just as God says. This, this bread falls from heaven in, in, in the morning, and they said, what is it? Which, that kind of sounds like the word manna, so they called it manna. And then in the evening, quail came. And they're commanded to gather it in a certain way. They said, hey, gather as much as you can, as much as you can eat. It will be to your heart's content. And, and then the next day, the provision will come over and over and over again. But they disobey the commands of God. See, God said back in the previous verses that this was going to be a test to see if they will obey his commands, and the people didn't listen. They begin to hoard the manna and the quail to save it for the next day. See, they don't trust that God will provide for them the next day, and so they hoard it for themselves, and what happens? It stinks, it's rotted out, it's spoiled, it has worms. And so they, they continue doing this day after day, and they have their, their fill, and they have their share. Last verses we're going to read, verses 22 through 30, it says, On the sixth day, 
They gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until morning. So they laid it aside to the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall, not, you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to, to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore on the sixth day he gives you bread for the two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So they're commanded on the sixth day. They said, hey, this next day on the seventh, it's going to be the Sabbath. It's going to be a gift to you, a day that you can rest. Don't go work. Don't gather. So on the sixth day, gather twice as much. And when they did that in the next morning, it wouldn't, it wouldn't rot out. It wouldn't spoil. But the people still didn't trust him. The next day on the Sabbath, when they were commanded to rest, they go out and try to gather again. And the Lord is frustrated with them, but he, he tells them again, he says, hey, I've given you this gift of the Sabbath as a, as a gift. Rest. Do not work. Trust in my provision. In the last few verses in the chapter, God commands the people to remember this, to remember the provision that he has for them. And he says, store it, tell the future generations of how I provided for you in the wilderness. So, so the big idea here is the Israelites do not trust the provision of God. Although God had shown them many miraculous wonders and signs, he had shown them that he's committed to them. They still do not trust his provision. They hoarded the manna for the next day, and when they woke up the next day, their hoarded food had spoiled and rotted out. So, so what do we do with this? Obviously, man is not coming from heaven for us, so how does this apply to our lives? Well, well the, what we can learn from this is we are Israel. We are just like Israel. See, we have all sinned and rebelled against our holy creator, God, and in that rebellion, we have landed ourselves in the enslaved and oppressed by sin and death. We are completely and utterly helpless because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God. But God, so rich in mercy and love, he raises up the greater Moses, Jesus. And Jesus stepped down into this broken creation to bring a mighty salvation. Jesus, fully God, fully man, he lived the perfect life that we could not live. He was the unblemished lamb of God. But then at the end of his life, he was taken and he was hung on a cross to die a death that he did not deserve, but that we deserve. But he did not stay dead. He arose on the third day with victory. And the promise is that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus and who he is and what he did, then he becomes our substitution. That though we are unrighteous and sinful, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. The promise that anyone who believes in him there, we are now his children, his people. Our sins are completely and totally forgiven. We are washed and cleansed by his blood. 
And for those of us who have taken the step to trust in him, we, being his people, have certain promises of provision that he has for us. We have certain commands we're called to obey, just like the Israelites. But just like the Israelites, we've got trust issues. We fail to trust in God's provision so often. As most of you know, or a lot of you know, my wife Sarah, she's a foster care worker. And one of her little boys in foster care, his name is Ethan. And Ethan, when he came to foster care, he was five years old. And in his birth family, the family he grew up in, there was food insecurity. Now what that means is he didn't know when or where his next meal was going to come from. What that meant was there were times where he went hungry and he didn't get to eat. But now that he's in foster care, he's always provided for. There's a promise of provision for him. He will always have a meal on the table. In fact, he can have food whenever he wants it. He will not have to go hungry again. But the problem is he still has this mentality from his birth family. He still lives as though he has food insecurity. And so what this leads him to do is he goes and he hoards food. He sneaks into the kitchen when everyone's asleep or when no one's there. He goes to the the pantry, goes to the refrigerator, and takes some food, and he hides it in his room. And in reality, it's actually very dangerous because Ethan has several food allergies, including a peanut allergy. And he's been known from time to time to sneak a whole jar of peanut butter to his room. And as you can imagine, that's not good. It's very dangerous, and in fact, it could even kill him. And it's so sad and heartbreaking because he has all the food that he could ever want and need. He will never go hungry, but his mentality is, I don't know if I'm going to get a meal. See, that's what the Israelites are. That's what we so often do as followers of Christ. We have promises of provision from God, but we don't trust in him, and we hoard things for ourselves. And in this hoarding, we wake up the next morning, and they're spoiled, they're rotten, and they're ultimately to our destruction. And so for us, for the rest of the time we have tonight, I want to walk us through three main categories of promises of God's provision. This doesn't encompass everything, but these are three pretty big categories where God has promised provision for the Christian, for the believer, for his children. And so I'm going to walk us through these and and hopefully hit a few points for you guys to see where maybe your heart is not trusting the Lord. And I've got to be honest with you guys, this is hard to do, to stand up here and teach these things to you, because my heart doesn't trust in God's provision so often. So many times I fall prey to not trusting in him, and we all do. But I hope that as we go through this, this will help bring clarity to maybe some areas that you need to repent and trust God with more. So the first one is God's promise of joy. In John 10.10, Jesus promises that we will have life in abundance. That there is a promise that in a relationship with God, the true source of joy, that we will find joy. We will find contentment, satisfaction. But so often, we venture away from his commands, his design, to seek our own satisfaction, the things that we think will satisfy our hearts. We, We fail to trust him. For some of you, this is is not one that you necessarily want to talk about, but we've got to. For some of you, especially in this college life, it's struggling with sex and substances. 
you've bought into this whole mentality of eat, drink, be merry for tomorrow. You get a nine to five job, settle down with a wife, have two and a half kids and retire. And, and so now live it up because you can't be an alcoholic in college anyways, right? You know, just do your own thing. But what we fail to realize is there's so much clear instruction in God's word on these things. He says that sex is given to us in the context of marriage between a husband and a wife. You see, where he calls us not to give in to drunkenness. He calls us to obey the laws of the land. And the laws of this land is you have to be 21 to drink. But so often, we don't trust that obedience in God's commands is going to actually bring us joy. We don't trust that that's where true happiness is. And here's the truth, and this is a, a biblical truth and a truth that you probably have seen played out in your life, is sin brings consequences. Sin brings destruction. And some of you see this now, where you, you see the damage in relationships that you have. You see the, the damage in your own mind, in your own heart. Some of you might not see it now, but you will one day see it in your, your expectations with your, your future spouse or maybe some addictions that you're battling. But if you were to trust God and trust that his desire, and you would see that there's a greater joy within his parameters, within his commands. And, and I guarantee you, if you were to trust God with these years of your life, you would find that you would save yourself so much heartache for now and for down the road. Why would you waste your life now pursuing all these things that are, are fleeting and their lesser joy, lesser uh, satisfaction, when you can experience an abundance of joy now? For a lot of you, it's not anything like that. For a lot of you, it's friendships. You are seeking to satisfy the desires of your heart with your friendships, whether it be a friend or a friend group. And everything you do is aimed at pursuing satisfaction in this group with these people. And, and the thought of losing it is just absolutely crippling. And when there's tension and conflict in the group, it, it, it just it wrecks your world. You're putting the weight of your heart's desires on human beings, and it was never, human beings were never meant to bear that kind of weight. Now, now let me say this, community is a good thing. In fact, it's a commanded thing from God. We're called to be in community, but we, community is never meant to be our God. We, we are called to step into community, but first we've got to rest in the joy that comes from the only relationship that can satisfy the desires of our heart, the relationship with our Heavenly Father. And then from there, you can truly enjoy the relationships that he's gifted you. The, the bottom line is, if you're chasing the desires of your heart, and forsaking the commands of God, living in disobedience, what you don't realize is you are settling for a lesser joy. You're settling for things that will not satisfy your heart. You will not be content. You will be left empty, and the pleasures you will find, they're going to be fleeting and temporary. The second promise of provision for us as believers is the promise for our future. As children of God, God promises for our future. In Revelation 21, 4, he promises that there will be a day where he's going to wipe away every tear and wipe away, uh, and death shall be no more, and there shall be no more mourning and no more crying, no more pain. He promises that ultimately we're going to spend eternity with him. But in Romans 8, 28, it also says, and we know that for those, or we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. 
He promises that in every single situation, every single moment of your life, he is working for his glory and for your good. That's a promise for your future. And though we have the stability of this promise, we so often live like, live like it's uncertain. And, and you can see this in some of you in your relationships. Some of you are, are dating or pursuing someone that you know you shouldn't be with. You know that they're no good for you. And, and you stay with someone or pursue someone who's not good for you because you're terrified that you're going to end up alone. You know that God calls you to be with someone who's a Christian. You know that someone that you're supposed to date someone who's a believer, but you don't trust God's plan for your life. You're willing to stay someone who is maybe emotionally or even physically abusive because you are so terrified to be alone. You don't trust that God has your future. You maybe will compromise on your values to stay in the relationship because you don't want them to leave you. You don't believe that God has sovereignly ordained every single moment of your life, and you don't believe that even if marriage isn't in your future, that you can still be single and satisfied and fully content in him because you don't trust that he's enough. For others of you, it shows in, in achievement. It shows with how you do work and how you do school. You are so terrified that one day, you're so anxious about one day being financially stable to be able to provide for yourself and your future family that you end up leaning on your own ability to achieve. And what you find is you are unbelievably stressed out with your classes. You're, you spend an unhealthy amount of time studying and working, and this leads you to sacrifice good things like relationships and, and your own health and well-being and spiritual things like coming to corporate worship and Bible studies and spending time in the Word. And you find yourself completely and utterly distraught when your achievements don't measure up. They, they fall short. For many of you, you don't have a rhythm of rest because you are scared that if you rest, you're going to fail. See, there are things in your life, you have to understand, there are things in your life you cannot control about your future. And if you believe your future solely relies on your shoulders, you are destined for a life of anxiety, stress, and exhaustion. You do not have to rely on yourself to carve out your own future. Trust in the sovereignty of God and live in the freedom that comes from knowing who holds your future. For others of you, it comes from your mind, your thoughts. You are so anxious about the future, you spend your nights spiraling about the what-ifs at life. What if something happens to this person that I care about? What if I don't get this job? What if I get this grade in this class? What if this? What if that? And you spiral further and further and further into anxiety. You find yourself unable to function in the now because you're so stressed out about the what is to come. It's gripped your mind and it's gripped your heart. But if you were to live like every single moment was ordained for God's glory and for your good, you would experience a true freedom unlike any else. The bottom line is trusting God with your what is to come will allow you to live freely now. And this is the final one, the final promise of provision that we're going to talk about tonight is the promise of love. We, we so often fail to trust God's provision of love for our, our lives. We, Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That though there is nothing in and of ourselves that we have to offer, 
Christ still loves us, that he knows the deepest and darkest depths of who we are, and he loves us anyways, and that love is absolutely unshakable. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, For I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear me say this. We, we are accepted and affirmed and loved, and this love is not contingent upon anything you do. It's not contingent upon anything in and of yourself. It is solely contingent upon the character of God. But so often we live like we don't have this acceptance. So often we seek acceptance and affirmation and love in other things. For some of you, it's in the approval of man. You, some of you live and die by what people think of you. When you, when you have the acceptance and the affirmation and love someone else, it just, you're on cloud nine. It's great. But then when you have a threat to lose it or you lose it, you are just absolutely distraught because you live and die from this love. When you're hoarding the acceptance and affirmation and love, man, it's going to show in your actions. You're going to sacrifice obedience to try to impress other people. Some offhand comment will send you absolutely spiraling in anxiety. You're going to have absolute anxiety about losing this relationship. And every interaction that you have with these people or this person, you're going to be anxious because you need it to go absolutely perfect because you want them to love you, want them to accept you. For others of you, maybe it's you've put up some pretty high walls because you've been burned before. And so you're scared if you're open and vulnerable to someone else that they might get in and then they might reject you. And so it hurts. But what you're failing to realize is that in Christ, you are already accepted and affirmed and loved. You don't have to live for love. You can live from love because you have that freedom in Christ. The love of God then gives you the ability to freely receive love and then to freely give love. Because you're not dependent any longer on the love of man. Instead, it's a gift that is enjoyed on the foundation of the love of God. Others of you, it's, it's an achievement, kind of like what we talked about earlier. You're, it's, it's success that validates your worth as a person. I'm going to work hard in school or in a job or try to get a certain financial status, or maybe I'm going to be a good person or a good Christian, be found in the right places, so that I can feel worthy and others will see my worth. But what you need to understand is your value and worth is not contingent upon anything you do. In fact, you are deeply and broken and sinful, but God loves you anyways. And so you can see the extreme value with which God views you by the price he paid for you on the cross. So yes, work hard at everything you do, but you do it not to pr prove your worth, you do it from your worth because you are worthy, because you are loved, because you do have great value. And then finally, for others of you, it, it's in your sin. You, uh, your lack of trust shows in how you view and interact and repent of sin. For some of you, you, you hide the sin in your life because you're so ashamed of it. For others of you, you sit and allow the weight of shame and guilt to just crush you. You allow it to keep you from moving forward. 
it completely immobilizes you. You need to understand that in Christ there is grace upon grace in your life. That Jesus' death on the cross was absolutely final. And because of it, we can boldly proclaim 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You do not have to be bound by the chains of sin because your chains have been set free through salvation in Jesus. So taking this home for, for us, if you're in here and you're a believer, we so often can be like Ethan, that little boy. We so often identify with Israel. We fail to trust the promised provisions of God, and we hoard things that eventually will spoil and rot and bring destruction in our lives. We fail to trust his provision of joy. We fail to trust his provision for our future. We fail to trust his provision of love. So for, for you, maybe it's something that I, I talked about tonight. Maybe I, I hit it right on the head for you in your situation. Maybe for others of you, it's not something I talked about, but you know exactly what it is. You, can, you don't have to look far in your heart to know there's an area where I am failing to trust God with my life. For others of you, you need to seek and you need to search and you need to look where in my life is there tension, stress, anxiety, and oftentimes these are good indicators of where you are failing to trust God. Identify that sin, confess it, and let go control of it. In John 6, it, Jesus tells the people that he is the bread of life. He is the bread from heaven. Be satisfied in him. Trust his provision of joy that he, only he, can satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. Trust in his provision for your future, that he is working every single moment for his glory and for your good. Trust in his provision of love, that he has seen the darkest depths of who you are, yet he loves you still so deeply. Trust in God's provision, and then allow that to let you walk in obedience. Others of you, maybe you're not a follower of Christ. You haven't put your faith and trust in him, and you are still in Egypt. You're still oppressed and enslaved by your sin. And maybe for some of you tonight, this was the, the first time you've been made aware of that. The first time your eyes were open to your own brokenness, your own need for Jesus. Maybe, maybe for others of you, you've known for a while things weren't right. You've been seeking for a little while. Maybe you can tell that something's not right with you and your creator, God. My hope and my prayer for you tonight is that you would trust Jesus with your salvation. Truthfully, that's the reason why we do everything, is that, that hearts will be, be uh, opened to the salvation that's in Jesus. The thing I told you when Egypt, or when Israel fled Egypt and they were standing at the, the, the Red Sea, and Moses said, hey, Lord will work a salvation for you. You need only to be still. He will fight for you. That is true for you, unbeliever. You do not have to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do. You, your battle has been fought and it has been won by Jesus on the cross. You just need to be still. You need to trust him with that. Put your trust in Jesus and who he is and what he did on the cross. Be covered and washed by the blood of the unblemished, innocent lamb 
and let your sins, past, present, and future, be taken care of ultimately on the cross of Christ, and then walk in the newness of life. The question for us all tonight is, will we trust in the provision of God, or will we hoard what will inevitably spoil, rot, and bring destruction? Thank you.